Hey Queeros, Cameron here. First, I want to thank all of you who came to our first ever live episode of Query. We taped it in Vancouver. It was a huge success and I appreciate you so much. As always, I want to remind you that you can buy Take My Wife on iTunes, Amazon, or Google Play. My television show with uh, my wife, Rhea Butcher. So excited about the continued success of Take My Wife. And today on the show, we have the wonderful Andrea Gibson. You know, I was kind of in like a dark place personally um, during the taping of this episode. And really, it became a lot more about asking Andrea's advice and feedback about how to continue as an artist um, amidst setbacks and while you're, you know, trying to stay true to yourself. I think this is a really interesting conversation and I hope that you enjoy it. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, you know what? That's actually a good way to start. We sound open and friendly and excited to, you know, hang out with each other, which I, I am all of those things. <laughs> it's uh, good for to you. sound that way also. Yes. yes. So what I do on the show is I have people introduce themselves. Would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Andrea Gibson. I'm a queer, genderqueer, romantic, political poet. <laughs> I love to hear, I mean, I probably say this every time somebody introduces themselves, but I love to hear the words uh, that people associate with. That's rad. <laughs> Romantic. You know, I, I don't think I've ever used that to describe myself before. But I was thinking recently about how many love poems I write compared to political poems. And I've always said I'm a political poet, but I write more love poems than I do political poems. I guess that I guess that love poems are political, you know? Especially I was just queer love going poems. to say that, you know, when your life and existence and identity is politicized, uh, love is like one of the more political, just being outward about your love is one of the more political things you can do. Yeah. You know, I was doing a show in um, San Francisco a few years ago with uh, Holly Miranda. Do you know who she is? I know who she is. Yeah. And, um, Right before I took the stage, she was telling me a story about how uh, Nina Simone spent several several years during the civil rights movement refusing to sing love songs. And people would come to her shows and they'd request love songs. And she would refuse to sing anything that wasn't a, a social justice anthem, you know, at the time because of, you know, the state of the world needing that. And I thought that was so badass. And um, that night I was making my set list to go on stage and I didn't have any love poems on the set. And then right when I got up there, I realized just by the nature of a poem being about a woman, a love poem being about a woman made it a political poem, which is heartbreaking in a way, you know? Um, in every way, it's heartbreaking that love is ever political, but yeah. 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 I mean, it, it is heartbreaking. It's also, well, it's certainly an interesting decision to make because it's also very personal. So when you're making art that's for public um, like presentation or consumption, whatever's like the word that doesn't feel gross. Yeah. <laughs> right. When you're making art that's supposed to leave your house or whatever, yeah. like uh, not just private journaling. Um, I mean, because this is something I get asked about all the time. My relationship, I'm in a relationship with um, a person that 
I work with and our relationship has a very public side of it, which is a choice that we both made. I didn't see my relationship type being portrayed by other people. And so I chose to do that because um, it just felt like a vast emptiness. Yeah. (laughs) And it still is weird, you know, to like commodify or present to the world in any way. A thing as personal as love. I know, it is. I also, I mean, I, I remember when I, I first started seeing the two of you and, you know, about together and, um, you know, not, I wasn't following you around your neighborhood or anything. <laughs> <laughs> on, the, on the internet. I found it really refreshing, you know, because I, I hadn't seen couples like you in the, you know, media or whatever. And I, I found it liberating. And there's still, you know, I think that I wonder all the time, how much of myself can I comfortably put out? How much of my relationship, you know, do I feel comfortable sharing? And because it always feels good to me to see, you know, queer couples publicly. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any sort of rule that you stick to on that? Or is it like how you feel in the moment? You know, a lot of it has to do with um, who uh, I I think that I do actually have a rule to never write negatively about a partner. (laughs) I don't think I, you know, I've gone through some shitty breakups and I feel good about having um, never written a mean word about somebody that I dated, even if they were blah, (laughs) like not that great. Cause you know, obviously we probably had equal ways of not being that great. Um, so that's uh, that's the only rule I can think of. And then different people that I've dated over the years have had different experiences with whether or not they, you know, want a picture of themselves on Instagram. Um, my partner now is a poet and, and she's fairly public in a way. And um, and so our relationship has been more public probably than any other relationship I've had in the past. That's so interesting you saying specifically the part about not wanting to share negative experiences um because there is a part of just like protecting somebody who basically didn't give you permission to share that Mm -hmm. um but then the other side of that for me and I just wonder if you've ever had this experience I also feel like as a queer person we actually do not need more stories of like queer people being terrible like that's actually what we're fighting um so actively is is you know just anything that we could be less than stellar humans. And so I do feel that it's an interesting balance, even for myself, like in trying to share things that I like about myself or don't like about myself on stage. It is kind of a privilege to be able to like be self-deprecating, for instance. Right. Or to be able to pick and choose, you know, what what you want to say about yourself. But I think about the thing that you just said about uh, in terms of, you know, I, I have, I don't know if you feel this, but a responsibility to, uh, to, to look like a perfect couple to straight people. You know, it's like, God, if I ever get in an argument with a partner in public, I'm like, let's get away from the straight people <laughs> before we start arguing because God damn, there's enough of, <laughs> there's enough against us. I dream of the day when we can just be sucky in public like everybody else. <laughs> That's amazing. That would be lovely. That's amazing. You know, I would say, I mean, there's a difference between, again, like what I would want people to see or versus what I would like present to them, because I actually do present 
well, Rhea, my wife and I do present to people that we fight a lot because it's important to me that we're not presenting like a a perfect coupledom, but we do. We're polishing that, like even the way that if we're on stage talking about fighting, that's not actually somebody seeing us fighting. Um, So yeah, there's always like a filter that's being put on to try and figure out. And this isn't to say like this isn't this isn't some sham or like Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's no false. Yeah. uh, There's nothing false about it, but my um, just curated. Yeah, my. uh, I just finished a poem, well, I just finished an album, but one of the tracks on the album is a poem called Fight for Love, and it's the entire poem is about fights my partner and I have gotten into. We actually, in one part of the poem is, I'm I'm talking about um, how we started, we tried to start a podcast that the whole podcast was discussing our arguments um, because, you know, we're both in therapy <laughs> in couples therapy with this amazing therapist. So it's like, what can we learn from our arguments? And we were five minutes into recording and we canceled the show because we got in an argument <laughs> in the middle of that. And we're like, no, we're not doing this. Um, but it's pretty funny. And we're, you know, we have dreams of doing it as a longer, like, you know, 15 minute poem at some point. That's all about every argument we've ever been in. I love that. Also, yeah. and I, the idea that you would unpack fights on a podcast is one of the queerer things I've ever I know, heard. isn't oh. it? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. With the dogs sitting right next to us oh. as we're doing it. Yeah. Well, really? <laughs> I really think that one of the strengths of our community is unpacking. And I... Sometimes, like a like a straight friend of mine, or or even a, like a straight couple, I will just like wander into an area of their relationship where I realize that they don't do that all the time, and I well, number one, they must have so much energy to get yeah. other things done. <laughs> I know, but number two, um, I don't know. I mean, I I love that closeness. I mean, obviously, that's why I do it. I love the like, like no, just like we have to solve this before we. Yes. Move I mean, on. I've been with people in the past who weren't unpackers, and it 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 was so hard for me because I I need every rock over. Like, I need to see every single thing, and I'm an over communicator. I think it's part of why why I do. Um, you know, why I write poems. People have different experiences of. Safety, I think some people feel safe if they can, you know, contain everything that inside of them. And ever since I was young, I mean, the more I could say about what was going on inside of me and what I was feeling, the safer I felt. So, uh, and she's like that too. I've met my match with um, over communicating. And so, is it the same for you interpersonally and like on stage or on the page? Uh, do you mean in terms of communicate? Uh, say more. I'll explain why why I asked that question. So for me, it's actually easier for me to communicate to like a large audience mm. than it would be for me to communicate one-on-one. This is pretty easy because um, like the terms have been set. Yeah. Like you know that you're here for an hour and I know that you're here for an hour. Um, but sometimes I stumble into feeling like I'm wasting somebody's time by talking about my emotions. Mm. So I have engineered a way in which people literally pay <laughs> for me to talk about my emotions so that I'm like, no, they're like, they're like fine with this. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and that is, I'm an over communicator too, but only in some ways. I think that, um, 
I think it's probably, I mean, I don't think I do to an audience the same thing I do to my girlfriend, hopefully. <laughs> but well, I yeah, me neither. Yes, me neither also. Yeah, but I do think that I, I share, you know, sometimes my friends will be in the audience and I can see by the looks on their faces that I may have gone too far in the, sh- <laughs> the, sharing, <laughs> the sharing of too much information and uh, they just start to cringe a little and, and I know I have to reel it in. Um but yeah, different shows. Some shows, you know, I'm just from poem to poem to poem. But um, And then some shows I just cannot stop talking about what's happening internally for me. Like sometimes um, I'll have shows. <laughs> Has this ever happened to you where um, people will raise their hand in the audience and tell you that something you've said might be um, triggering or problematic? <sighs> No, that specifically hasn't happened because I think stand-up has a slightly different vibe. Yeah. The closest thing I could maybe uh, draw an equivalency with is during the last election, after the primaries had already happened and we knew that Hillary was the nominee, if I would talk about making sure people were registered to vote and making sure to go out and vote. People that had wanted a different candidate to win the primaries uh, would like talk to me in a way I've actually never had Mm -hmm. happen at stand-up shows. Yeah. Where they wanted to have like a dialogue about, you know, specific things. I think this is also something we see on the internet right now a lot. Yeah, yeah. For folks on the left. And it was only odd to me because like it's 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 a an inappropriate venue for it like mm. the the dialogue actually can't be what the other person wants wanted yeah so i would i would be very confused about like what sort of the goal yeah was yeah that would be tricky yeah i get confused at shows too but i would love to hear about what your experience is with this uh, you know it, it tends to always happen in san francisco folks there are smart and on it and willing to speak up at any moment. I mean, like mid poem. Um, and so I've had folks just raise their hand. I, I can't even remember what the last thing would have been. Um, but I, it's sort of the culture of um, spoken word where the audiences feel uh, a lot of permission to speak in and say if something's um, <clears throat> trigger, trigger, triggering or, you know, if they, if they think something might be problematic. Which I think is great. Um, I love the idea of it being a conversation. Uh, but that was the last time I think I really started having to overprocess my feelings on stage because then it's, um, you know, I just kept having to stop and be like, wow, I noticed my stomach is still full of nervous, freaking out butterflies because of, you know, that thing that just happened a bit ago. But that's been my whole career is um, just, you know, tons of feedback. And because I'm writing about political things, and um, there are people who are learning at a faster pace than I am. And, you know, there's so much learning being done, which is great. And we're all educating ourselves. And often I'm, um, yeah, I'll, I, you know, I'm going out for a five month tour at the end of that, I, I'll know so much more than I did before, just because people are so willing to express, you know, what they're feeling and thinking about things. That's such a good point, though. And and I do think that 
I don't mean this defensively, but I think sometimes an audience member may forget that like, actually there's a, there's a portion of your day that is like traveling to the venue and sound checking and like getting up on stage and talking like your job is actually to be a poet and to perform. And so like the, the person who has more information, like it's actually okay if somebody has more information than oh, you. Oh yeah, totally. Because they might have an expertise that is not, I mean, I feel this pressure a lot right now because it's like we, we, for instance, on Twitter, it's like you have to get it right. And I'm trying so hard to get it right. But also like I'm a stand-up comic. So most of my day is not reading political articles. Like if, if somebody knows what it is, I hope they're sharing their opinion as opposed to um, only offering corrections. Does that make sense? I don't know what your thoughts are about like how you take a correction and incorporate it in. You know, uh, this is something I think about a lot, uh, all, all the time. Um, some of it being because I've seen a lot of um, poets in the spoken word community, at least, stop writing um, for fear of doing it wrong. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about our fear of doing it wrong because you know, people are learning so quickly. There's so much happening all the time. Like your phone is flooded with all this, you know, news that's coming in. And I'm, um, you know, and sometimes I'm like, God, what does this even mean? Does my brain understand this thing that just happened with Flint? Or, you know, I'm, I'm just, my head's reeling. Um, but I, I think that diving in any of us doing any, anybody just speaking up about anything or being public in any way or, you know, giving a shit about the world, you have to be willing to do it wrong. And at this time in history, you actually have to be willing to fail publicly. And you just have to dive into that, you know, because if you're ruled by a fear of, you know, uh, messing up, um, I think that that just limits creativity and and actually limits activism and how much we're actually going to show up for our communities and, you know, the country, the world. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just a willingness to, f- to fail and then to do it with some, you know, to know uh, that even, you know, if the feedback isn't packaged sweetly or kindly and, and um, <laughs> whatever by, our, by my definition to try to hear it as if it were, you know. You're a brilliant genius. Those are that's, these are great guidelines <laughs> for for how to operate as a human. I really think like anybody listening, regardless of what field they're in, that is a huge part of what is happening and what's been happening in the last year yeah. is like just trying to figure out how to navigate. Yeah. So thanks. I'm sure people are really going to appreciate what you just said. Okay. So let me ask you a question then about. I'm still interested in somebody saying that a particular part of a poem might be triggering for them. How do you take that in? Like, is that something where you want to adapt the poem in a different way? Is that something where you feel like maybe you were, you could just be more clear and that something could be avoided? Is that something where like sometimes it's really is just what you meant and you want to be laid bare and and let it trigger people? Like, is there, are there rules or yeah, thoughts? Um, you know, uh, my experience with it is whenever somebody has given me feedback on something I've written politically or, um, I would say like 
98% of the feedback that I've gotten. And I don't read the comments on YouTube, so I, I don't mean the kind of feedback from somebody that might be hating on me. But um, 98% of the feedback that I've, I've gotten from folks who, you know, are listening to my work has been right on. And uh, what I do in that case is um, I'll just, you know, I'll change. I'll do whatever I can to change it. Now, like if it's in a book, sadly, I can't get it out of a book, but I have gone back and removed whole tracks from albums that in retrospect, you know, 50, I've been doing this for a long time. So 15 years later, my politics have changed so quickly that, um, you know, I'll, I'll I'll take down videos that I now think, oh, God, that's a racist video or that's a homophobic video. <laughs> like, I, I, you know, I didn't know at the time when I just started writing. And um, even things that I've written three years ago that I, I might not have an awareness about something at the time. And then I'll do what I can to either change it or remove it. And in my live shows, I'll just change the poem um, and then, you know, thank the person who gave me the feedback, obviously. But... Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, I can't, it's truly every time I, I'm doing a new album, I'm, I, I know uh, that two years from now, I'm going to go, damn it, I can't believe I wrote that. <laughs> but right now, I don't know what the, what the thing is that I shouldn't have written. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would actually agree with you. I would say most of the feedback that I've gotten has also been right on. I think it's hard when there's a public record of that old thing. I mean, even taking it down, and it's not even just like the shame of that. It's more so just um, I mean, such a big part of what I love about my job is like being present in the moment. And so the fact that there are records of what that used to mean is just hard because it it was actually present at that time. Yeah, yeah. And so like being present now is totally, it, it's always going to be different because the now is changing. Right. And, and like, even like minute to minute and not just based on political events, like based on everybody that's in the room and how they're sitting that night and everything. Yeah. So it's really, I think an intense part of the job. Yeah. I, I forget her name, but, or who said it, but years ago I heard a poet say, um, folks were calling her out about some poetry that she had written and she had been writing for many, many years. And, um, and she was didn't want to change anything. I think uh, some of the stuff that she had written in her earlier work was homophobic. And at the time she wrote it, she was just a different person. But she actually wanted a record of her growth. I mean, she wanted to pe people to see, oh, look how you know, I was thinking in the late 90s and, um, and look how I think now. And she was adamant about, you know, not removing it so that she could own the entirety of herself and her journey learning. That is, that is, that is rad. Yeah. <laughs> like, like yeah. that I think is totally, well, sometimes when people talk about people being, for instance, like you saying that, you know, your work might have been homophobic. I mean, at, at 18, I didn't know whether or not I thought gay people existed. I found this, I went to Catholic high school and one of our senior year writing assignments was to write about whether or not homosexuality was immoral. And wow. like years later, I was at my parents' house, had like a floppy disk that just had my handwriting on it. And I put it in and I read this paper 
Wow. By the way, I did not print it out, and I do not have it, which sucks. Do you, I wish I had that. Paper. Do you remember what your take was? It, like, did you say yes. that it was immoral? No, I said. Are you ready? Because yes. it's really good. <laughs> yeah. I said uh, I had no way to know because I wasn't gay, so I didn't know whether or not it was a choice. Wow. And if it was a choice, then that would be immoral. But if it's not a choice, first of all, I actually also disagree with this at this point, obviously. But just the idea, like thinking about, you know, teenage me being like, I have no way to know. That is I like that. I like the idea of you saying, I mean, but did you did you truly have no way to know? You didn't feel like you didn't feel like you were gay, queer or anything at the time. Oh, I mean, I just had no awareness of like what even the what it was, what yeah. that would be. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I, I like that. I like that lens. I do because it's like, <laughs> how can I speak for people that I'm? You know, I wish all the homophobic straight people would be like, I have no way to know if this is immoral. Like, I couldn't possibly know because I'm not queer. It's almost yeah. like you should believe what people in the community are saying. Yeah, because you might not. I mean, yeah. I don't think teenage Cami Esposito was quite there, but I do think that now I could put that yeah. application on it. <laughs> I think the choice thing is really strange. I've always thought that that was the weirdest thing, that if something, if, if folks were born queer, then somehow that makes it more valid. Isn't that, that's just like so wild. I've never understood that. I mean, if you're going, what is the sin in choosing I mean, even that, that, that makes you more rad. I mean, you're more rad if you're choosing love and pleasure and <laughs> all of it. Except if you are Catholic or, you know, often in this country, even just like Christianity as it's woven into yeah. the fabric of our lives, cotton. Um, no, as <laughs> I, I just feel like we are taught to be at war with our bodies any choice that's about sexuality yeah that anybody is making but especially women or queer folks or people of color like especially somebody that's not a straight white cis dude um is a choice being made for a gross reason yeah as opposed to the real reason to do these things which is to create sons yeah (laughs) (laughs) the only real to create white sons (laughs) yep Hey, Queeros, today's episode of Query is sponsored by Tomboy X. Okay, let me tell you about this brand. It is an underwear brand. I really like what they're doing. Tomboy X has everything from bikinis, briefs, boxer briefs, trunks, boy shorts, soft bras, racerback bras. They have underwear that fits folks across the size and gender spectrum, from extra small to 4X, However you identify, they probably have a pair of undies that would make you feel good. I know this because Tomboy X started sending Rhea some underwear, and then Rhea fell in love, started wearing those undies, and I tried them on. They weren't right for me. Tomboy X sent me a different pair that, you know, is shaped differently, and I love them. So there's different feels to their different underwear, and I really like what they're doing. Um, You could check out whether or not this is the right underwear company for you, and I think it is, by going to tomboyx.com slash query, where you can check out their special bundles and pack pricing. You can also get an extra 15% off by using the code query. Again, just use the code query for an extra 15% off 
Ditch whatever you're wearing and get yourself in a pair of Tomboy X underwear. I have an amazing Catholic story. I would love to hear it. Okay. <laughs> I went to a Catholic college. Um, I grew up in, a, in the Baptist church, but I went to a Catholic college to play basketball. Wait, and where did you grow up? Um, a, north, a little working class town in northern Maine. It's called Calais, like uh, it's spelled Calais, but it, they say it like the thing on the bottom of your foot. Northern Maine. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm understanding fully. Yeah. And so I went to, to college to play basketball, this little Catholic university. And uh, our, the whole time I was there, nobody was out. And my junior year, I figured out I was queer. And I was desperately looking for somebody to be queer, but there was nobody. I, my teachers were monks um, and nuns, and I played basketball for the lady monks, which in retrospect is so queer. But at the time, nobody thought anything of it. We were the lady monks. And so I thought of it as the most conservative school ever. And just last year, I mean, it's been 20 years since I've graduated. And just last year, um, it was five days after uh, five days after the massacre in Orlando. Um, I was performing at a pride event like 30 minutes from that school. And I had been for years wanting them to invite me. And, you know, they were just too conservative too. Um, and then I look out in the audience and there is a man um, wearing a t-shirt that says Monk's pride. And I was like, I got to talk to this dude. And afterwards I talked to him and he's the leader of the LGBTQ group at the college where I went. And I just started weeping when I was talking to him because I didn't know anything like that existed. It had only happened for a year. Um, and so uh, I finally went, I finally went back to my Catholic college, um, you know, several months ago and performed for the first time and the monks and the nuns <laughs> were there and the president of the college was in the front row and he could tell I was trying not to swear, which is really difficult for me in a show. And, um, and he interjected to tell me to not censor myself. And it was, it was so sweet. And I, you know how we need so many things right now to, um, lift us up because it's so, you know, there's so much, I, I feel so much despair this year in so many ways. I, I've felt more political grief, I think this year than I have in my life. So I'm, I'm looking for things that lift me up and I'll, I'll go back in my head to that and think that's one thing that changed. And, and that's a good thing. Yeah. I'm so happy for you that you had that experience. Yeah, it was so Like re really, really, I am. We had very, it sounds like we had very similar college experiences and yeah. I too have wished that I actually did go back right away. Like I think the year or two after I graduated, yeah, I came back and I performed there and they paid me and I whatever. But then I, I hadn't even gotten mad yet mm. <laughs> about the way that they, that the college treated not just me, but every queer person that had gone there. Yeah. And then they called me. <laughs> You know, they call you for money. Yeah. They call me. I mean, it's like some undergrad, like some poor, mm -hmm. like some 19 year old who's like, hey, so do you want to donate? And I said, um, I will donate to the university when the university publicly apologizes for its long term commitment to keep queer students in the closet. Wow. And I have not 
ever gotten another call to donate. Wow. So I want to know like what my number was flagged as. <laughs> oh my God. Just like demands public apology. Do you know if that school is still doing the same thing? <laughs> I mean, like, is there like a, is there like a color that they turn your cell in the Excel, oh Excel spreadsheet if you demand a public apology? <laughs> um, I do know that the year after I graduated, they changed their policy while I was an undergrad there, they had an, there was an op there was a fight about getting sexual orientation and gender identity put into the non-discrimination policy mm. and they wouldn't do it. Wow. So that meant that they could dismiss you from the faculty or kick you out of school. Technically, even though that didn't happen to anybody that I knew, um, Because it was all out in the open, like yeah. it was people, everybody knew that this was the policy. We also weren't allowed to have a, a, like a queer organization or even an allied organization. There was an organization I wanted to start that was just like, we're just generally cool with these people. Yeah. And they weren't allowed to do that. Wow. That changed the year after I graduated, but I don't know. For me, it's like not enough. I'm so mad it's like kind of the biggest source of anger for me as an adult is at the church because I feel like they could do so much. Yeah. That it infuriates me that they don't. I still have so much. Um, I feel like so much of me is is shaped by uh, growing up Christian. And um, so I, I feel like a lot, a lot of it I appreciate. And um, more in sort of a, a magical way in terms of like my ability to imagine, you know, magic or the impossible or the the idea of, you know, walking on water. And I think, okay, so that's what needs to happen right now to save the earth. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I do, I get dreamy in, in these ways of like, what, how do we manifest magic right now? Um, and in a, <laughs> I think that's a good part. The rest of it, I think in some ways it did make me um, have more of a craving for community. I think that that's something I appreciate. And the singing, I like singing. Um, but the rest of it, it's hard. It's hard for me. To take I, in. I'm on the same page. I think of myself as like ethnically Catholic. I, You know, the same way that people who yeah. grow up in Judaism, like, they, they, you cannot separate from that. Like, it's such a right. big part of me. I was just... I like play Christmas carols in my in my car yeah. and Rhea was like literally why are you doing this like you like have so much you know psychological damage around this and I'm like Rhea these were my favorite songs yeah and they're they're, they're my favorite songs <laughs> <laughs> and they're made by the greatest musicians of all time As, they're so good they're <laughs> so good and the ones that I love the most are actually the holiest Jesus-y like <laughs> I, I mean I'm, I don't even want to hear about Santa up on the rooftop I want to hear about Jesus and the manger and the three wise men and like it's just <laughs> I mean you can feel it it just feels so grand you know like I, I love it Still, I love it just as much as I, I did. I yeah. do too. I mean, yeah. also, like, obviously, I'm limited by growing up in like a mostly Christian culture, or like, obviously, where Christianity was pushed to the top. But 
they did a great job, yeah. especially like the Catholic Church of, of drafting artists and like looking for who would be the tastemakers and being like, hey, you guys want to make like some cool statues for us or whatever. So yeah. there's so much good shit yeah. that is associated <laughs> with an organization yeah. that I that that's that's why I get so mad is like I'm like, they have all the good stuff or they yeah. won't share it with the people that are actually doing the work. I feel like all the queer centers in the world should take over so that churches are not the only place places with stained glass i feel like there should be stained glass yes. rainbow stained glass windows on all the queer centers everywhere <laughs> oh my god yes please the church should beautiful donate ceilings them. can we get some beautiful <laughs> ceilings in here yeah can you like just decorate places that don't need to be decorated i mean can the you buildings are so beautiful they're amazing i love i love <laughs> going to old churches yeah and it gives me a feeling that's also beyond my control which is Again, why I think it's like an ethnicity thing. Yeah. Because walking in there or hearing the music, like it's a, it's still the community aspect. Yeah. It was like my access to spirituality in general. So it makes me. Do you pray now? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's really hard to even figure out what is happening. I'm I'm very, like, I'm super, I'm, like, practicing my own faith, having a spiritual experience of stand-up, yeah. having a spiritual experience of a, of a lot of things that I think a lot of people wouldn't yeah. assume are spiritual. Um, but again, I really grew up in, like, this very regimented faith faith where like praying actually meant a specific thing wow yeah. so even words like that it's like it's very hard for me to figure out like i don't even know i mean yeah. do you pray i definitely talk out loud <laughs> yeah to something in the sky like i look up <laughs> I, hear what, <laughs> I talk. Yeah. you know especially when something awful is about to happen <laughs> you know or i'm like oh please oh i prayed the night of the election actually i i was just like talking to the sky um and you know it wasn't a it wasn't a a white dude in the sky or on a cloud sitting up there it was you know the, the sky <laughs> I don't know I'm like please and so that that made me realize that nobody is actually listening <laughs> <laughs> I mean or like that person is not person that entity that like molecule whatever the heck is going on is is like uh actually you all really need to work some shit out so I'm just gonna let like <laughs> yeah yeah maybe. a little bit of hellfire brimstone happen for like a little while man yeah it's I thought, yeah. You said a phrase. I wish I could remember. I mean, it was just a couple minutes. Uh, politically, uh, God, I don't even know what you said. But you were talking about the last year and saying that you, you're you more, I was like exhausted or something. Dang. Despair? Yeah, political despair. Maybe that's what you said. Something like that. Yeah. So, so oh, I have too many things I want to ask you. So it's... Mm, fluttering around in my brain. Can I just catch up and ask a question that oh, I meant yeah. to ask almost immediately and then get back to your of political course. despair? Yeah. Number one, first question. <laughs> how does how do you become a poet? <laughs> <laughs> because I feel like that is a baseline really good question. <laughs> yeah, that is 
That is a really good question. Um, let's see. Well, uh, the first memory I have of it, and I've told this story uh, many times just because I love it. But you know, you know when you're in a kindergarten and you start, you're writing with a pencil all the time, and you start to get this little like bump on your finger. Do you still have one from writing with a pencil, yeah, or has totally it gone do. away from no, I have typing one. so much? Yeah. yeah. So I remember when I got that. Uh, for the first time, I remember running home from school and telling my mom that my hand was changing shape to prove that I was a writer. So I remember I was five years old and I was thinking, I am a writer. And I was so proud of my little self for, you know, having proof on my own hand. I had proof. Um, I wrote growing up, I wrote sto- a lot of stories. And then um, my senior year, when I was going to school to play basketball, I turned in a paper that I was so proud of. And it was the first time I'd put a ton of energy into writing something and it came back with an F on it. And I just started bawling and the teacher told me I didn't write it. And I ran down to the principal's office with my paper, just sobbing, saying, I wrote this paper. I wrote this. And it was this big thing. My parents came in, you know, were, it was a mess, but I did write the paper. But that's when I decided I wanted to study writing in college. Um, and I went to college and studied creative writing, even though it wasn't the type of thing, like I thought maybe I'd be a teacher or something. And, um, but I loved it. It was the one thing that, you know, time, uh, where time didn't exist whenever I was writing. I wanted to be able to get up on stages and, and read my writing, but I knew that would never, ever happen. To graduate, I had to read four poems, um, I had to read four poems out loud to the class to graduate, and I was so terrified. I almost dropped out of, you know, my writing concentration, and the teacher actually let me get drunk so I could do it. Like, that's how scared I was. So I'm drunk in front of the class, like, reading the poems, Um, and it was awful. And then... Yeah, I started being around more poets and they were always on stage and I'm just like, I could never ever do that. My stage fright was too intense. But then I got my heart broken and that <clears throat> was the best thing that ever happened to me because I, I, you know, when you get your heart busted, you just don't care. You're like, I'll do anything. And so I read a poem finally at an open mic um, with my heart busted and, you know, the bravery that comes from having a broken heart. And uh, then I, I was terrified. The paper was shaking so loud that I couldn't hear my own voice. And then the next week I went to my first poetry slam and then I just started doing it. And I'm still, honestly, it's been uh, 17 years since then. And I've, um, I'm, I'm just as scared every time. I thought it would go away, but it hasn't. Oh, that was, that was my question. Is <laughs> yeah, this, it's this? the same. It's the same wow. every time. Yeah. It's wild. I've never met, I've truly never met, and I've met a lot of performers. I don't think that I've met somebody with more stage fright than me. Somebody that is just, it's just not, um, it, it terrifies me. Does it ever click into a different zone? Like if you get on stage, are you in a different place? Yeah, and my therapist has <laughs> helped me some um, because one of the things that she did is she told me to <clears throat> stop trying to hide from the audience that I was terrified. And so that's one of the most liberating things that's happened through the years is I know when I get up there, whatever I'm feeling, I don't have to hide it. And I just speak it. Um, And then that makes it easier. And yes, I mean, there's also the thing where I'm, it's not just terror. The terror is happening at the same time as um, 
just really loving something and and feeling connected to people and all of it's so many emotions at once yeah man i have i have no stage fright i can tell and i have never had <laughs> stage fright not one time um i that is just i so many people, I, I, I'm so jealous. I would love that. I feel like I need to get hypnotized or something. But then also, <clears throat> like, um, I wonder if there's something in it. You know, I wonder if there's an energy in it. And I write a lot about anxiety, panic attacks, mental health, mental illness. And I wonder if I would be able to do that if I wasn't having those experiences. I, I'm not sure. So Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I certainly know people that are... Maybe it's not what you're describing, but but similar um, that are just like affected by being on stage. Well, so one thing that that makes me think of is a lot of times when I when people, you know, there's, there's that moment where you tell people what you do for a living. If you feel mm -hmm. like actually not lying to them because you're on a plane or something and you're, mm -hmm. they're going to ask you to tell a joke or tell your poem or like yeah. whatever it is. <laughs> if yeah. you're like actually telling the truth that people will say to me anyway, like, oh my God, that's the hardest job because you have to get up in front of people and that's not difficult for me. So I, so it's hard for me to, not hard for me. So then I, I always say that like, no, no, I, I swear that's like actually fine for me. Like it's just different people have different skills yeah. and some people like open up a head and they look at a brain and they like do things to it. So like, <laughs> I'm just like doing something that I, that yeah. feels fine. Um, but for you, that's incredible that you are able to do this. Well, I mean, I guess it's like doing my whole life. You know, I, I was just telling my partner that um, one of the last times I was in LA, I was actually going to come to a show of yours. <clears throat> And I couldn't go because I felt like uh, the show, I, I was worried. Sometimes comics are interactive with the audience. And even being in the audience and feeling interacted with, it's like my nervous system just runs so high everywhere. So, um, so it's just like the whole world all the time. And so on stage oh, is exceptional. Yeah. I totally get that. Yeah. A lot of people also, you can see in the audience who's having that experience, yeah. especially <laughs> yeah. like at the UCB, which might've been the place yeah, that yeah. you were coming. Yeah, it's was. pretty small mm -hmm. and you can kind of see people's faces. And um, I try not to talk to people that I think are going to have a terrible <laughs> night. Yeah. But I also, f it's interesting to try to figure out. I would love to hear who comes to your shows. Because another thing that's really cool about this show that I do at the UCB is if there's somebody who, like, looks visibly queer or, you know, or not. Sometimes it's just, like, some dude who looks, like, really not visibly queer yeah. or whatever. <laughs> but, but a lot of times I'll talk to people who um, might usually have a bad experience mm -hmm. in that situation. Like, folks who are presenting as maybe, like non-binary or there's some gender fuckage going on or whatever I'll try to talk to that person and yeah. give them a good experience because yeah. I don't I just want to like build with people in the audience and I know for a lot of people in our community when we've gone to shows in the past it's like that experience is actually the experience we live every day of our life which is somebody being like what are you and why does your hair look like that and right. all that stuff I even do that if at meet and greets and stuff mm. if I notice somebody has like a particularly unusual hairstyle really long rat tail like something where I'm like this is a thing that is hard for them every day like people are mean to them about this or whatever yeah I will be like I, mean, I, bet I it's love really your rat comforting. tail <laughs> I bet it's really comforting for people when you do that and then also the thing is is when I go out and I am in a space where 
you know, I'm anxious, just having social anxiety. Usually if I do have an interaction, it's, it, it typically, I feel better afterwards. So it's like, it's just sort of getting yourself there and yeah, I, yeah. Who's in your audience? A lot of queer people. Um, tons of queer people. Uh, and you know, I, um, I talk a lot about mental health and, and, um, suicidality. So I think that there are a lot of people in the audience who have struggled and that way I talk about, um, you know, bodies and body positivity. And so there are some folks that just come for that. Um, I write a, quite a bit about sexual assault and then there, you know, might be a whole section of people that are there just to hear poems on that topic. Um, but I would say, uh, the audience is largely queer and, um, yeah, you know, and it's wild because, I write a lot of my poems for people who will never hear them. Like the political poems, you know, I'm writing them for, you know, uh, you know, the quote, um, to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. <clears throat> Art has the responsibility to do both. There aren't as many people at my shows as I would like to, you know, that I could be disturbing. I think for the most part, I'm comforting people with what I'm saying. Um, they just don't tend to invite me to very many Republican spaces right now. <laughs> Which is actually a shame. Like, yeah, it really is. It really is, yeah. You know, I... Earlier when we were talking and, and you were talking about, like, not necessarily focusing on the delivery method or um, tone of the, of the way feedback is given, I also think, like, on this show, on Query, I put a little... There's a thing at the beginning that says, like, this is people talking about their own personal experiences. So there might be stuff here that doesn't feel good to you. And mm -hmm. just to let people know, like, I'm aware of that. Yeah. Um, but I'm trying to have an interpersonal conversation. And so those things are harder to limit than like a produced poem or, right. or show. Um, and then I also ask for people to be like polite in the way that they engage with feedback. Because I think that we're like so... I don't know. I feel it myself. I'm such a nervous wreck right now that I think it's really hard to remember to be kind yeah. to people. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, that obviously sucks and doesn't get anything done. Yeah. Like coming in. Yeah. It's tricky, you know, because it, it's so uh, complex because I, th I think the people who are um, you know, being called whatever, uh, who get the most criticism for not um, speaking their feedback kindly. Um, uh, if I were to guess, I would say it would be black women um, being, you know, tone policed on how they're saying things. And so it's, it's tricky. And then I'm like, do men ever get, do white men ever get feedback on, you know, how they're not doing something kindly or sweetly enough? So, and I, I agree with you. I mean, I don't personally want to give, um, yeah, it's so tricky to know, you know? That's actually a great point though. And I'm really glad you brought that up because that is right. There, there's almost a couple different things going on, which is that, um, I would much rather have somebody lift up the woman of color who's saying the right thing 
then police the white person who's saying the wrong thing mm-hmm. with a zillion quote tweets. And I guess that's actually what I'm having a hard time with right now. It's the same thing that's happening with this like dialogue about sexual assault where a lot is being said and centered on um, predators as opposed to survivors. Yeah. And so I, I'm not talking about like be kind if you're being oppressed. I do not believe that. I'm saying like I'm not sure that it is as – not sure that it is as fundamentally useful to like correct everything that's wrong without presenting some things that are right. Yeah. And that's, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm wondering if that is shifting a little bit right now. I will say for me, I feel like I'm getting a lot more information about what's right yeah. than I have in the past, which is adding to my frustration mm. like just as a white person i had a lot of filters going on in my life to understand something like police brutality like on a daily basis yeah. so i feel like i'm getting a little bit more information about things because of the choices that i'm making on the on like for instance on the internet like who you follow right yeah and i i, I mean i feel grateful to be in to be in communities, you know, with folks that are, we're, we're all trying to figure out what is the best way to do this, you know, because we're learning from each other. And so when we're, we're messing up, okay, so <clears throat> what is the feedback that is going to be, um, you know, heard and responded to? And what is our ultimate, you know, what is our ultimate collective goal here? And maybe we don't all have the same goals. Um, I try to put a lot of trust in the fact that I, I think that we're, a lot of us are doing it in different ways, you know, and, and I, I don't think that we need to get homogenous with um, our ideas of how this is, this is how it's supposed to look. And this is, I don't really know. I'm talking in a circle right now, but no, you're not. You're actually <laughs> saying a really important yeah. thing. I, I'm like loving this conversation because I think you're helping me reorganize my brain a lot, which I really need right now. So thank you. I don't know if you thought that was what you were yeah. doing today, oh, but great. it is. <laughs> great. Great. This episode of Query is sponsored by Tripping.com. Queeros, if you know me, and I think you know me a little bit, you know that I travel all the dang time for work. So is there a place that could make it easier for me to find a place to stay when I'm going out of town? Yes! Don't visit a ton of different sites. Just go to Tripping.com, where one search lets you compare every home from the world's top vacation rental sites. What? That's right. And hey, vacation rentals offer more. There's more privacy. There's more space. Everyone can fit under one roof. It's like a hotel, but better than a hotel. Best of all, at Tripping.com, you can join the millions of travelers who find more savings because vacation rentals are also 80% less than traditional hotel rooms. So if you're planning spring break in Florida or a trip to Lake Tahoe, I don't know, maybe you ski or wherever you want to come. Visit me in Los Angeles. Well, don't visit me, but come to see my live stand-up show. Put your hands together. You can save time and money when you book the vacation home of your dreams by going to tripping.com slash query. That's tripping, T-R-I-P-P-I-N-G dot com slash Query. Find your perfect vacation rental. Given that you're right about everything that you've said. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What are you doing on a daily basis right now to like feel good as a person? 
Um, like to have enough energy to just exist. I'm writing a ton. Um, I feel the happiest when I'm writing. Um, there's nothing I do that, <laughs> there's nothing I do actually more than, um, there's nothing I do that I love more and feel happier doing except maybe walking my dog or sex. Okay. So <laughs> sex and walking my dog, then writing. Um, and then just, you know, being, being engaged with people and learning from people. And you know what I find so exciting? <laughs> I find not knowing things so exciting. When I was young, uh, when I was 22, I felt like I fucking, am I allowed to say, I'm, I'm, don't you can, say the you can curse as much as I you want. I like, am the person, <laughs> I am the president of your school in the front row. You can curse as much as you want. I felt like I fucking knew everything when I was 22. I mean, because I was so excited to be queer, to, you know, to be discovering activism and all of it. And, but I just like was so committed to knowing. Um, and over the years, as I got, as I've gotten older, I feel so liberated by how each year I grow, I actually feel myself knowing less and being more curious. So it, the the more I'm in a place of, wow, I don't know, I feel like that is my most creative space and my most open space to learning something new. You know, I feel like much more capable of, I don't know, being awake and being ready to show up to whatever's going on when I'm not in a place of, of knowing like everything, so much going on. And I... I think the questions are key. And, and that's what I love about radically liberal folks is I, I, I feel us being fascinated and interested in the questions. And I don't want to say that there are two sides, but when I look at Trump's camp, I'm like, that is like an answer. This is how, these are the answers. This is how it is. And it's all fucking wrong. <laughs> it's all wrong. Um, but I, I, to exist in wonder, in an active wonder, and in loving wonder, I think is, that's what excites me the most. And about the, you know, people like you and people. Th this is great. And I'm curious as to how you put that into work, because like work is, um, and this has been a very work-focused conversation. I yeah. guess I don't, I just guess I just am <laughs> feeling fine. like I want to know how you do it. Yeah. Um When you're in the zone of being open and questioning and being happy about those things and then at the same time put in like a leadership position or like at least the stage to audience dynamic implies some sort of power difference, um, even if you don't want it there to be one, you know, it's mm -hmm. it still exists. And I'm wondering how those two things work for you. I've actually – you know, it's tricky because I've not actually – I don't know if I tap into that um, experience of uh, really, you know, one of the things that I, I love about uh, spoken word is that it, it really is feels like a conversation to me. And I don't think the audience ever knows how much of the poem they're reading, <laughs> like how much of the poem that they're responsible for, because it's really an energetic thing. A poem is entirely different if I'm, you know, in a room reading it to myself and um, and it can feel completely different to me. And so it's, um, and I learned through the process of writing. And then I also learned through the po process of, of writing and writing something wrong and then getting feedback from it. So I, not to say there isn't a, some sort of, 
um, way that maybe folks, I'll, I'll say something and then maybe people will hear it and tend to think that that's, you know, okay, let's believe that thing. Um, but for me, my I've just had such an experience in my career of it being more of a collective thing of just, oh, well, we're all in this room together sort of trying to figure this stuff out. Um, and also I'm in community with so many poets that I'm constantly learning from and changing my mind constantly about about things. You know, I'll go to a show and think I think all these things and then my heart is completely rewired within 45 minutes. So, but I mean, not to back out of the... Sure, I mean, you know how the, the you know, when you're on a stage, that's sort of, that comes with it a little bit, but I don't, I disassociate from, <laughs> <laughs> my therapist, I keep quoting her, I mean, I'm like, I can't go any, anywhere without talking about my therapist, but she does say, like, she thinks that I completely disassociate from uh, having a public persona at all. It's like, me, I don't really have a conversation with the, the knowing that person is on a stage. I can't explain it really. So the the person that's on the stage is not you in your no, brain. Are you is. like on a passenger? Am I a passenger? I know it's not not me. It's just I don't um think about that stage person after. I don't I don't really know how to explain it. I wish my therapist was here to explain <laughs> it to you. <laughs> Are you not viewing yourself from an audience member's perspective? Yeah, I, I guess that's is that what, what I mean. it is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's what I mean. I mean, I I think that makes sense. I yeah. think for um again, it's not like I Maybe it is a little different. I'm not it's not that I feel like adulation or whatever, but in in uh, my experience with an audience is really of like downloading other people's energy, like mm. of really taking it in, yeah. which makes me perform better and bigger. Yeah, and I know that I'm giving something back to them, but to me that f- feels very like heady. And verbal, what I'm giving back. But I mean, I try to be rooted, but I just I'm I'm feeling a lot of energy coming into my body. It must feel so nice to. I just can't even imagine if if my show, like if my job was to make people happy. I just love that. I mean, that yeah. must feel so nice. <laughs> you know, that is your job. It's and and not only is that your job, but it's 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 known to be the most healing energy for people to laugh is actually healing. Like they've done studies that it, you know, it it it's medicine. It it works against illness and depression and all of the bad stuff. Well, I mean, thanks. I will take that <laughs> on a day when I could use to hear that. But I I also think um, it's like a door into the same stuff when you listed the topics that you talk about. We have a lot of similar we have a big similarity yeah. in time in terms of topics. And um you know, for me something that is hard to figure out is like the topics that are the most personal to me can be hard to make fun make funny because there's a moment where the audience will feel bad for you or they'll like empathize with you and that's actually the enemy of comedy. You can't they cannot you have to be more – maybe this is why I'm also bringing this up. You actually have to be more in control mm-hmm. so that the audience feels comfortable yeah. to laugh. Like what you were talking about. If you feel like, oh, my God, is is she going to call on me? Am I in charge of this show? It's like too nerve-wracking for an audience to relax and laugh. Right. So you have to be like, no, 
it's okay. I'm okay with this. It's hard to talk about something like, you know, body positivity and working through that if that's a moment of vulnerability for you, but you're also trying to be like, it's okay and I'm vulnerable and it's okay and I'm vulnerable. Right. It's a lot of like doubling back down versus for you, I'm actually um, envious of not needing one specific reaction from an audience. Yeah, that's, I mean, it is interesting though because I, I do think a lot about, um, you know, because uh writing about sexual, my own experiences with sexual assault, they're also, or writing about my experiences with, <clears throat> with the, I have Lyme disease, so writing about chronic illness, like, so both of those things are, are uh, tricky to write about because I do have the thing in my head where you can say anything, Andrea, but, but whatever you do, um, <laughs> don't write something that is going to make the audience have an experience of feeling bad for you. And that for me is just a place that I can't personally go um, because then I just, I, I don't feel safe on stage. If my, if I feel like my audience is feeling like they have to take care of me because they're so kind and just like open hearted. And that's a place of, um, I don't know if it's a place of vulnerability, but it, that's one protector I have for myself is like, the audience can't feel bad for me. I have to keep it at that. That's camp. exactly the same. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Wow. They they can't. The, that's exactly right. You can't laugh if you feel like you're taking care yeah. of somebody. Yeah. So it actually is interesting. The same. We share that. That's wow. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have necessarily thought that. Hmm. Interesting. So you're about to go out for five months. Yeah. When's the last time you did five months? I mean, I've been touring since um 2004, really constantly, and so I've. I've done some big tours, but I've not ever done five months before. I've, and I'm, I'm releasing a book and an album at the same time. So where I would have breaks, I'm going to be in bookstores. So it's just, yeah, it's five months straight. So five months queer, let's say it that way. <laughs> <laughs> We've actually even had like similar scopes. I Yeah, I started doing comedy professionally in 2004. What the f? Can't believe we haven't run Why into each other. Why are we other. not better yeah. friends? If only I didn't have an anxiety disorder. <laughs> <laughs> I would have met you months ago. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So this is a while this is so because I've also been on the road for a lot of that time, although here mm. in Los Angeles a little bit more the last 2 years which has been very weird like sort of um internalizing news at a distance mm. from the communities where those things are happening for the, yeah. for like the 10 years prior, I felt like I was always kind of there to see it for myself, even if it wasn't like directly after the moment, just the touring around the country. Mm. Um, so like, do you find any difference between what we're being ta told is happening, the narrative of what's been happening in the country like the last year and what you're experiencing actually on the road? Uh, I mean, I actually had to go on the road to to realize that there was actually a chance that Trump um, was going to win. Like when I, I live in the country in Colorado and, you know, there's every sign is for Bernie or it was for Bernie or for Hillary. And um, I just thought no one is voting for Trump. And so I don't know why I'm surprised by that. Yeah. What, outside of what city? Outside of Boulder. Yeah. Now I'm unsurprised. Yeah, I've unsurprised. actually just gotten way less surprised. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
You're just you're just picturing a bunch of people. I'm like, on, well, you're on their outside lawn. of Colorado Springs? This is very strange. And the whole food saying just, namaste just, to each other. Just, yeah. <laughs> just just Bernie Country. Classic Bernie Country. <laughs> Fort Collins. But then I was on tour and I'm on tour and you know, I'm like, what are all these signs? Like truly I go visit my family in Maine and and um and yeah, so then I, I I get it then at that point. I thought, oh God, he could actually win. Um, but you mean in the last year, do I see anything? Ask the question again. I'm- yeah, I'm just curious because I think you and I are in unusual positions where we are traveling the country so much right now. And something that I noticed, so like I was here in LA for almost two years um, and then went out this fall on a big tour. And I think what I was surprised by was like, Number one, how freaked out everybody was. Because, I mean, you see that on the internet, but you don't experience it. And then also how freaked out everybody was everywhere. Because I think something that that we're, that we're taught is that people on the coast are having some different experience than people in the Midwest. Or like, I don't know, that we're all having really different experiences mm-hmm. from each other. But But what I have seen is that a lot of people are having very similar experiences, regardless of um, location. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you something good I've noticed. I would love to hear something yeah. good. So I, I don't know that I, I, I don't want to negate, um, you know, the awful shit going on in terms of um, what the Trump administration, you know, <laughs> is not looking out for queer folks at all. But right after the election and ever since, um, when I'm in an airport, I'll be on the plane or a store, like in like all over the country, I, I'm having an experience of straight presenting, or, you know, folks that I'm judging as straight being so much kinder to me than ever, ever before. It's wild. And it happened right after he got elected. And I don't know if people are trying to say, hey, like, you know, not us. But, in a, you know, I look really queer. And so um, my friends, my other friend was commenting on, on it too, who um, travels a lot too. And she was saying, is this happening to you? And it has been happening to me all over the country where people are just kinder than they have been ever. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's weird. And I get nervous to say it because I don't want to say, oh, the country has gotten, you know, kinder. Because, of course, there's the whole, you know, lots of people who aren't doing that. But it's felt drastically different to me lately. Right. Well, I do think... Again, maybe that's actually what I was talking about. I think like so many rugs are being turned over right now. There's like, there's just so much that many people are dealing with on a daily basis that that's why I'm pushing for kindness because I think we are already all taking in so much. And so like, if it's somebody that you like, I'm not saying I'm going to go up to Donald Trump in some dream scenario where I actually get to talk to him and deliver my message with kindness. I think I would have a very hard time being kind to that person. Yeah. Um, but I feel like just realizing how much everybody is dealing with right now right. and coming at it from that perspective feels really important to me. Yeah. And 
that's what I hope the queer community specifically does for each other. Again, as we like challenge each other to get better and to give each other more um, information, I don't think it's tone policing that I'm advocating. I think what I'm advocating for is is giving each other a little bit more feeling of safety. Yeah. And... Um, the benefit of the doubt, maybe, because it's... The benefit of the yeah. doubt. Actually, that's exact. That's the right way to say yeah. it. Giving people the benefit of the doubt um, that they could hear this in a good way or, like, that they aren't going to come into your community and, like, eat your kids or whatever people thought queer folks were doing, right. you know? Um, I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example of something that really blew my mind. God, I wish I could remember this person's name and their and their child's name. There was that video, like, just from a few days ago of that uh, gentleman in Alabama who was protesting outside of a Roy Moore um, rally the night before the election happened. Uh And he had a poster of his daughter, who was somebody who had committed suicide because she had been bullied for being gay. And this is, like, a peanut farmer. He's super old dude, like... Alabama guy he's white he's like you know got white hair he's bald like like he just looks like the guy that's not standing outside of a rally with this sign and he also took personal responsibility for his own part in creating his daughter's um whatever feeling of like being chased you know must have been a part of her life and I'm only bringing this up because the fact that that man exists right now and is taking a stand and is like, and even with that past and whatever we could say to him and how angry we could be at him for treating his child, however he may have treated his child. Um, but then the decision to do something like that now. Yeah, no. And, and and that's the thing with approaching things with kindness, because I do think that if uh, if we're approaching each other with kindness, the likelihood of us shifting and changing for the better is much higher because folk, uh, folks shut down and, you know, response to feeling, um, feeling attacked. So I, I do agree. I think that, yeah, absolutely. Any moment to be kind, of course, is, is going to be better. Do you want to know something cool? I would love to know something cool. (laughs) So, uh, since Trump got elected, I hate even saying that man's name, but, um, I hate, I hate (laughs) saying his name too. I literally asterisk it on Twitter. I've not typed his name one time. Good for you. Yeah. I hate him. So (laughs) you say that open (laughs) the apocalypse apocalypse. I think one of the main definitions of apocalypse is the time when things get revealed. So I think of Trump and I think the end of the world, but I do think that this is a time of a revealing and uncovering just how, like how much, you know, ugliness has been in this country, how much racism, how much just grossness. And um, when I think about, you know, God, is the end of the world here? And, and I think of it in those terms, I think, and maybe it's just that we're uncovering everything and things are getting revealed and, um, and hopefully we're here on the other side of it. And but I think the revealing is important. And I think that's the um I think that's part of the whole Me Too movement that's um 
so inspiring and empowering to me. Yeah. We couldn't agree more on that. So yeah. I think the the revealing is like, how can you fix a problem you don't know that you have? Right. Yeah. Um, so this is, I'm so glad that you are out in the universe doing the work that you do. Really. I have like loved talking to you. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, much. Thanks, for Kim. doing this today. And before you go, I just want to ask you um, to talk about a queero. Love is, that word. Actually. <laughs> Did just, you invent that? You know, I don't know. Is that a, is that a good answer? Like, I yeah. feel like it's like one of those things that I've said it, but like, it has to have been said. Maybe. Who knows? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, since you're a comic, I'll say, um, I, so there's so many, but I think I'd have to go with Tig. I love Tig so much. <laughs> and um, do I say why she's a queer? Yeah, you can totally. You can you can give us some info on. Yeah, um, I love Tig because uh, you know. Well, first of all, I find her to be one of the most authentic people I've ever been around. And whenever I'm around her, I I really um, feel more of a feminist than I ever feel anywhere because she gives uh, people such permission to um, not not be nice, but <laughs> to just be uh, really be real. Um, and just I, I trust her immensely to be, you know, honest and authentic. And, you know, of course, her... Um, with her whole set when she came out and was talking about her mother's death and um, cancer and that whole awful time. Um, to me, as a, a poet and a writer, it really pushed me to um, consider where I was choosing to be vulnerable and where I wasn't and um, and just to see the power and vulnerability and uh, yeah, and how much just vulnerability and honesty could shift everything. So... Yeah. I What's love up, her. Tignataro? Thank you for being a yeah. queer. <laughs> She's a queer. Well, Great. Andrew Gibson, thank you so much for being here today. And uh, you have this huge tour coming up. And the good news is our listeners are everywhere. So great. That's they will awesome. come. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for having me. I'm Cameron Esposito. And I'm Maria Butcher. And we are stoked to bring our long-running stand-up podcast, Put Your Hands Together, to Earwolf. Yay! <laughs> Every week we record PYHT live here at the UCB Theater in Los Angeles. Recently, we've had sets or chats from folks like Sarah Silverman and Hari Kondabolu. We've had Earwolf faves like Paul F. Tompkins, James Domian, Nicole Byer. It's the opportunity to be at a live stand-up show hosted by two wives in your ears wherever you live. You can listen or subscribe right now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Earwolf.com. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.